Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Another beautiful morning out. Well, today we are going to uh, talk about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about who is Jesus, um, according to a passage here that Paul wrote uh, some 2,000 years ago. Um, and when, you think, when we think of the question, who is Jesus, I think it's, just, it's a question in our society and the, uh, the times in which we live that we must continually have at the forefront of our mind. Because if we listen to the voices around us merely, we're going to have all kinds of, uh, uh, of misconceptions of who Jesus is and uh, making, making uh, that, are, that He's made up in um, the way we want Him to be or the way we think He might be. But what we're going to look at today is what Paul and in the inspired Word of God says that who Jesus is. Uh, turn, if you will, with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at um, this letter, a section in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Coloss. Um, and although uh, in today's uh, uh, ideas, the Pauline authorship of, of Colossians is, is often challenged, um, it is uh, certainly not the case internally. He claims authorship, Paul does, throughout the letter, Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, um, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 18. This internal evidence seems sufficiently strong enough to project Paul of Tarsus as the author. And external evidence is also strong. Um, Curtis Vaughn notes allusions to it in the early church fathers such as Ignatius, Polycarp, Barnabas, uh, Clement of Alexander, Origen, um, all seem to indicate that uh, Paul was the author of Colossians. So I don't think there's really any, any reason to, uh, uh, to go any further than that as, as far as who the author is. Now, this, this is a letter, and I was thinking about the idea of letter in today's world. That even seems to be a bit foreign to us. How many of you have written a letter in the last month? I mean, a letter. Eh, more than anticipated. <laughs> I, I have had intentions to write letters. I have yet to write a letter. Uh, you know, we have texting, we have emails, we have instant messaging, and nice short blurbs, and they're, you know, they're all, I've got nice, uh, you know, some advantages to them, but uh, setting down and writing a letter is really becoming quite, quite the lost art. My daughter, my oldest daughter, Kayla, is, is an exception to that. She, she writes tons of letters. She's, she's always got a letter going out in the mail, but very few coming back in, it seems, I guess, but, but this is a letter, and let's, let us not forget that, that this is a letter, and not only written by Paul, but some, and, uh, Verse 1, it tells us that Timothy was also part of writing this letter. There was input uh, at some level from Timothy. There was some kind of, uh, if you will, um, uh, uh, unity with Paul and Timothy writing this letter to the church of Coloss. Uh, also, interestingly enough, this letter uh, later on in the, in the, in the book, tells, Paul tells them that they are to share their letter with the church of Laodicea and that the letter he, that he wrote to Laodicea they should share with the church of Coloss. Um, Paul probably wrote this letter, I, I'm estimating around 61 or 62 A.D. on, this, on the information I've uh, uh, gathered, probably from Roman prison, uh, probably his prison in Rome towards the end of his life. Some would doubt that or question that it might be a different imprisonment, but, but I, I think it was probably the Roman imprisonment. So let's read uh, a section of chapter 1. We're going to read verses 13 through 20 of chapter 1. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it is with the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And of Paul's writings, I would say this is one of the most succinct um, passages of Paul's Christology. What does Paul, who does Paul think Christ is, and what does Paul think Christ has done? And this is a very, this passage comes in the midst of, a, again, a letter to a church. And if you read before the passage which we just read and after the passage we just read, you're going to see, you'd see a lot of pronouns like you and yours. And Paul is talking directly, directly to the church at Colossus. But here he makes a switch. He begins not talking, about, talking to uh, the church of Colossus and more of a, uh, 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 just a, a communication aspect. But he specifically begins describing who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And so this becomes the centerpiece, if you will, of chapter 1. It's the Christology uh, of Paul, Paul's view of who Jesus Christ is. And so let's look at it uh, in detail. Uh, First of all, five things that Paul says Christ is, uh, part of the essence of Jesus. Uh, And we're going to go through these fairly quickly, but the five different things. First, he talks about in verse 15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. And I think what Paul is, is, is getting at here is that Jesus was a real physical entity. He was incarnate. He was God incarnate. He was not merely just a spiritual being, but he was God incarnate. He, was, he had material. He had flesh and blood. Um, Coloss may very well... Coloss was a part was a part of a major trade route from the east. It was on a major trade route from the east. And Colossus had begun to uh, decrease in um, uh, importance, but still was an important city. But many, some think uh, that what was happening in Colossus was they were beginning to get influenced by some of the spiritual and religious ideas from the east. And one of those would have been uh, that uh, kind of the early Gnostic views, the spirit, good, matter, bad. <laughs> And uh, Paul's saying it's, a little, it's not quite that simple uh, because Christ himself was material. He was physical. He was the image of the invisible God. Another thing that, that uh, we see that Christ is in verse 17, he is before all things. And if, in this passage, the word all is used quite frequently. Uh, all uh, is used uh, several times. I didn't count the actual number, but in several cases. And I think all things is an important phrase. Nothing escapes the things that he, God is before, that Jesus Christ is before. Jesus himself is... <clears throat> some would say, well, how about, how about Jesus? How about God? Is he, was, uh, was he uh, who created God? And, of course, the simple answer to that is he was not created. He did not come to be. 
What Paul is talking about is all things that came to be, God and Jesus were, Jesus Christ was before those things. He was the creator of all things, but he himself did not come to be. He was not, he, Jesus is not merely everlasting in the sense that he had a point in time of beginning and, and, and we never, and we'll, his time, his existence will never end. That's, that's us, if you will. We had a point of existence and we will have no end. Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning. He had no end. He is before all things. Uh, verse 18, um, he uses the description here, Paul does, of Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And, of course, the body here is referring, he's referring to his church. It's kind of a metaphor. You know, you think of the head a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> maybe I'm just a slow learner, but it just dawned on me when I was going through this, uh, through this study over the last several weeks Four of the five senses are in the head. <laughs> you know, we have five senses in which we can sense this world. Well, our nose, our mouth, our ears, and our taste are all in the head. It's a, it's a pretty important part of the body. You know, we can live without an arm or a leg or a toe or any number of things, but you get rid of the head and we're pretty well gone. And uh, not to be gruesome, but that's just the truth of the matter. And, and I think it's, it's, so Paul is using this imagery to show of the importance of Jesus Christ when it comes to the church. And I think this is just from, from my time here at Lion and Lamb, this is something that uh, is clearly communicated, is that, 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 this, that the church, either local or even, even more un- universal, is not a business. <laughs> We're not looking for the head, head, head honcho. Uh, being a human, and working our way down from that. But Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church, and I think uh, Lion and Lamb um, certainly exhibits that. And uh, uh, for one, uh, I greatly appreciate that because I think that is the correct, the correct view of, of the church. Thirdly, or fourthly, excuse me, the f- Jesus Christ in verse 18 is also described, Paul does, Paul describes him as the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Now, this idea of firstborn, um, early in the passage, Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. By doing so, Paul is not suggesting that Jesus was the first created being, as the Jehovah Witnesses like to try to try to suggest. Rather, it is a word used to convey the meaning of preeminence or special place. Had Paul been attempting to communicate, and I think this is important, trying to communicate the idea of physical birth or that Jesus was a a physical creature that was truly born, he could have easily done so by using a different Greek word. But this idea of firstborn has the idea of preeminence. And when Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead, he's suggesting that Jesus Christ was the one who overcame death. The tomb is empty. That's what he's referring to. He's the firstborn from the, from, from the dead. Genesis 3, the curse of death has been reversed. And then in verse 19, uh, the idea of that Jesus is the fullness of God. Um, this seems to me to be a reference to Christ's deity. The, the English Standard Version um, explicitly puts in the idea that it's the fullness of God that dwells in Jesus. I didn't see that in, uh, in, in other texts, uh, but certainly the idea seems to be there, even though uh, it doesn't explicitly say it, but that the idea that Jesus, the fullness of God, dwells in Jesus Christ, the incarnation. One other note on that verse is the, well, I don't know if it's an adverb or an adjective, but pleasurable. God found it pleasurable for the fullness of deity to 
to, to dwell in Jesus Christ. It was not mere duty, but God found pleasure that He would uh, take on the form of humanity and that His Son um, would walk this earth, that there was some pleasure in that. So those are five things that we see about Christ's essence. Those are uh, you know, pretty, pretty standard ideas, uh, but, but, but Paul lays them out one right after another. Then what I'd like to spend the bulk of our time on is three things that Paul now describes in the way that Jesus Christ acted here uh, on earth and, and before then for that matter. So three things that, that, that Christ did. And the first is found in verse 16. And it says that Jesus Christ created all things. He created all things. So it begs the question, what did he create? Well, Paul even continues to go into some detail. He, 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 he makes sure uh, that his, his audience sees all, or understands that he's talking about all locations, whether heaven or earth. It's, he created all things, the things above, the things here on earth. And then the other distinction, and I think this is a very important distinction that he makes in this passage, and I think it's also important throughout the, this, the book of Colossians, is he made all things visible and invisible. Visible and invisible. Now, let's, let's discuss this a little bit. Um, recently, just I just got back from a trip to New York, the state of New York, and then Friday I had the opportunity to go into New York City. Okay, now somewhere there's I think a television show, Kansas Farm Boy goes to New York City. <laughs> this was quite an experience for me. <laughs> uh, so we we get in the train and we head down there, and everything's looking pretty pretty okay. But even on the train ride. You know, I'm looking around, and have you ever just thought about how many things are in this world, on this earth? I mean, you know, just start around the building and just start working your way out. There is just, on, on the way there, there's just, to New York City, there was just building after building after building, and uh, just so many things. I think those are the things uh, that would come under the category of all things. Um, when I think, just a side story here. Uh, when I think about uh, buildings in particular, I remember as a young kid, uh, and I don't know if I was being honorary or insightful, I, su- I suspect the former, <laughs> the first, but I remember asking my mom, my mom would say things like, boy, you know, was trying to teach me, God created all things. I said, well, well, how about our house? Did God make our house? You know, and of course, you know, the wise mother said, well, okay, men built the house, they composed the house. But where did they get the wood, right? <laughs> okay, where did the wood come from? Well, they came from trees. Well, where did the trees come from? Trees come from God, and so on and so forth. So all things come into this category. Um, nothing escapes that which God is created. Man might compose things. Man might construct things like homes and buildings. But their creation came from God himself. So back to the New York story. We're going, we're, we're going in through the, on the train. We come out of the train, we come out, and we're at the bottom of Madison Square Garden, and all of a sudden there's this massive... Have any of you ever been to New York City, or a big city? Some of you have been to big cities. To me, it's just, it was just overwhelming. There are just people everywhere, just, just all kinds of people. There's billboards, there's electronics, there's things happening all around you. And, um, and, it, and again, I was reflecting that all of these things... Whatever they were made of, whatever they're composed of, all things visible were created by God. Man may think we're pretty smart. You know, we, 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 we're pretty good sometimes. We've done some pretty neat things. Um, 
But we've created, in the sense of ultimately, we've created nothing. We've only composed and constructed. So that's the physical. But there was an, there's another idea here, and I think it's very important in our day to discuss the invisible. The invisible. Now, I don't think what Paul is getting at when he says invisible in this text is things in which the human eye can see. I don't think that's the idea he's, he's getting at because in our scientific world today, one may say, well, an amoeba. Can you see an amoeba with your human eye? No, you can't. I don't think that's the idea Paul was getting at. What Paul was getting at was that which is immaterial. That which is immaterial. See, we live in such a materialistic world that we begin to think that all things are material. But that is not so. There are so many things that are invisible. Let me give you a few. The laws of logic, right? We use the laws of logic every day. Whether or not we study logic formally is a whole other issue. But if, if one, the law of non-contradiction, for just as a simple example, if, the, if the, the statement Topeka is the capital of Kansas is true, okay, what the laws of logic says that its opposite is not true. Topeka is not the, sta- the capital of Kansas, is not true. And we live by these laws of logic. Those aren't, those aren't physical. Those are invisible. They're immaterial. How about the laws of mathematics? How many of you got up today pondering, is 2 plus 2 equal 4? Is that still true today? No. We know it's, it, it, is a, it is a law that is not physical. Now, we can write the numbers 2 plus 2 equals 4, but those are more, mere representation of some other law that's behind that, the laws of mathematics. I had a class, which I would never recommend to anyone, <laughs> when I was at K-State called the Theory of the Real Number System. Talk about a boring class. <laughs> but they basically, they were trying to get behind the idea of why is 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, if I've been much, I'm, well, maybe not much wiser, I'm a little wiser now, I would have just said, how about God? Have you checked him? <laughs> have you checked that idea? Uh, tried to, basically, what we ended up doing is describing why is 2 plus 2 equals 4, but, go, but gave no reason why 2 plus 2 equals 4. It always does, whether you're an atheist or, or an evangelical Christian, 2 plus 2 equals 4. The laws of mathematics are invisible. God created them. They come from Him. The laws of physics, gravity, right? The laws of gravity. We can't see the laws of gravity. We can see the effects of gravity. We can't see the laws of gravity. How about emotions? How about that response in you when you see a beautiful painting or you see a beautiful flower? That's an emotive response. Now, some would say, well, it's just chemicals in the brain firing. Well, there may be chemicals in the brain firing, but I think there's something causing those chemicals in the brain to fire, namely that emotion, that uh, invisible thing that God placed inside of us or the moral law that God has placed inside of us. Things that are invisible. I think in our world that we need to constantly remind people, believers or otherwise, that the thing, the reality, the things that are reality are not merely physical. They're also immaterial and invisible. And God is the creator of all of those things. Um, this idea of, of, of reality being more than physical, I think, is a real challenge for scientific naturalism today. Uh, they, they are struggling to try to explain ethics. <laughs> Where do ethics come from? Where does the mind come from? Not merely the brain, but the mind. Here's one person, the one person who's really attempting this, and I've not yet completed the book, but I've read the, the introduction by a, name of, a guy named Steven Pinker. 
Uh, and he is at least, he's, he's certainly not a believer, and he is a, uh, certainly a card-carrying evolutionary scientific naturalist. But listen to what he reads about this idea of the mind. When we face a problem, we may not know its solutions, but we have insight, increasing knowledge of an inkling of what we are looking for. When we face a mystery, however, we can only stare in wonder and bewilderment, not knowing what an explanation would even look like. I wrote this book because dozens of mysteries of the mind, from mental image to romantic love, have recently been upgraded to problems. Every idea in the book may turn out to be wrong, Kind of interesting, <laughs> but that would be progress because our old ideas were too vapid to be wrong. The point simply is even the hardened scientific naturalist realizes that there's a real issue when it comes to the invisible things of this world. I would suggest to you Paul has the answer. All things, visible and invisible, were created by God. I think this has really caused some confusion in our area, and I think this, this idea um, of, of not understanding the visible and the invisible and just kind of melding the two together is a reason we don't, that the world around us doesn't make distinctions between sex and love. I think it's one of the reasons that, we, that the human race seems to think that physical death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Physical death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. It's spiritual death. I think it's Francis Schaeffer was right when he talked about these ideas some 20 and 30 years ago when he talked about man is becoming to be seen as merely a machine, merely a bunch of chemical reactions, as it were, inside the human body. God is creator of all things, visible and invisible. <clears throat> Secondly, Christ holds all things together. Verse 17 Again, Paul uses the phrase, all things. This would have been an important phrase to the Colossians. It was not that Jesus was one of many gods. He was the God. Jesus was before all things in relation to time and position. Furthermore, Christ is not an absentee administrator. He is not an absentee administrator. The universe which he created, he also holds together. Every moment in time. Joseph Lightfoot uh, puts it this way. He is the principle of cohesion in the universe. He impresses on creation the unity and solidarity which makes it a cosmos instead of a chaos. Thus, to take one instance, the action of gravity. Jesus Christ not only created all things, he is holding all things together at this moment. And thirdly, Verse 20, and I think probably this is the overarching idea that Paul is really uh, drives home in verse 20, is the idea of reconciliations. He reconciled all things. He reconciled all things. At the very beginning of this, uh, this passage, he, uses, he talked about the idea of being re- that, he, that Christ had rescued us from the domain of darkness and that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So what needs reconciliation? What needs reconciled? I'd suggest to you that which needs reconciled is that which is broke, that which is not together in the way it should be. Um, the universe needs reconciled. We see physical death coming into the world. Christ is going to reconcile that. And more personally, uh, as humans, our relationship with God needs reconciled. Sin. It has to be reconciled. 
I thought about, I'm about ready to, the, the next uh, quote I'm about ready to read, I, I thought long and hard whether or not I was going to put this in, even up to about an hour ago. <laughs> and I decided to go ahead and leave it. Uh, in our world, in our, um, one of the things that is almost becoming a politically incorrect to talk about in the evangelical world is the idea of hell. <laughs> um, and when I think of hell and I think of being rescued from the domain of darkness and those kind of ideas, one person that comes to my mind <laughs> is Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? The, okay, a lot of you have heard of him. You know his, his grand sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Um, he preached that sermon in Enfield, Connecticut in July 8, 1741. And I just recently got a Max McLean CD where he, he does the dramatization of the whole, whole uh, sermon. Um, pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, they, as the stories go, people that were there said people were shaking, getting up, and all kinds of things uh, that were happening there. Uh, but I think in our world that we live in, maybe I'll, I'll just put it to myself, the world I live in, I, I came to Christ early in life. I've, I've had a um, reasonably uh, carefree existence <laughs> in the sense of I've had very little uh, strife in my life. I'm thankful for that. Um, so I think <clears throat> there's a tendency uh, for me, and I, I, I suspect others uh, that maybe are in a similar situation as myself, to take the idea of salvation that Christ brought us as a bit of an entitlement, uh, you know, just I'm saved. That's the way it is. And <clears throat> the reality of it is, without Christ, without salvation, our doom is most certain. Let me read these words from Jonathan Edwards. So that, th- thus it is that natural men, and when he speaks of natural men, he means unregenerate men, men that are not saved, Okay? I think that's key to, to what, he's, what he's saying here. But hence, that was the position prior to our salvation, or your position now if you have not been reconciled with Jesus Christ. Reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. So that thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of the wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold of them and swallow them up. The fire bent up in their own heart is struggling to break out, and they have no interest in any mediator. Mediator is capitalized. There are no means within reach that can, in, can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take a hold of. That be our position before Jesus Christ. That's where we were. We needed rescued. Jesus Christ and his act on the cross made salvation possible. He made it actual, and it is only up to us to, to trust in that mediator. We're not entitled, in a sense, just by our very existence for salvation, but it is a gift given to us by our gracious Lord and Savior.
The purpose of the Son visiting earth was stated in the beginning of this passage and repeated here at the close. That is, to reconcile all things while the essence of Christ makes salvation possible, it is the action of Christ that makes it reality. God created all things good, but sin came into the world. This distance had to be closed. If creation was to come into harmony with the Creator, the reconciliation was made by Jesus by having made peace through the blood of the cross. With these final verses, Paul is bringing the Colossians back to the idea of relationship. It is here that Paul remains for the bulk of the letter, the remaining part of Colossians. He explains how the Colossians should live in relationship to Christ, and it is Colossians, these, these verses that we've looked at, that explains who they are in relationship with. And quoting from Robert Stein of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he writes this about the claims of Jesus. On the lips of anyone else, the claims of Jesus would appear to be evidence of the gross egomania, for Jesus clearly implies that the entire world revolves around himself and that the fate of all men is dependent on their acceptance or rejection of him. There seem to be only two possible ways of interpreting the totalitarian nature of the claims of Jesus. Either we must assume that Jesus was deluded and unstable and in unusual delusions of grandeur, we are faced with the realization that Jesus is truly one who speaks with divine authority, who actually divided all of history into B.C. and A.D., and whose rejection or acceptance determines the fate of men. Do you reject, reject Jesus or do you accept Jesus? That's the question posed to every person in the human race. Um, I was thinking, um, and I'm sure you've got different people in your life that just that take the latter, they just or the former, I guess they just completely reject Jesus. They've rejected him. They are rejecting him. I uh, I went to a I go to some weird seminars sometimes. <laughs> I went to an ethics seminar at KU. Now this is not a Christian ethics seminar. This is this is a this is the naturalist. Uh, trying to explain ethics. I'm always intrigued by some tr- to try to hear somebody explain something that they're not, never going to be able to do. But anyway, I met this professor at KU here a couple years ago. Uh, he's an entom- uh, uh, evolutionary entomologist, uh, so he studied bugs. <laughs> and he actually came out of uh, Germany. He was in Germany during World War II as a young, young child and came out of there. Um, but the fact, and, and we, we've had quite quite a dialogue, haven't had much lately, but uh, for a year or so we had had a dialogue back and forth, and the bottom line is, is he is rejecting who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't even believe in God, number one, so it's hard to, <laughs> hard for him to move to a belief that Jesus was God when he didn't believe that God even exists. But he's just an example. You know, he has his hang-ups, if you were, or his, his problems of why he, he thinks he, that, uh, God, that he rejects Jesus. But that's really the question for all human beings. You know, as believers or unbelievers, we have to answer that. And as a believer, obviously, we've, we've, we've answered it in, a, in, the, in the correct way. But we must, the whole world is going to have to, is either going to accept him or reject him. And again, I come back to my, uh, my time in New York. And, and as I see all these people, you know, they're just, you know, there was a sense in my heart that I'm thinking, these guys, it's just hopeless. I mean, these guys, and if, you know, been, there's a lot of sensualism all around you, images, I mean, 
it's not a real edifying place in some ways. Um, and, and my mind sometimes thinks, man, it's just hopeless. I feel, you, you just feel like despair. But then, you know, you think a little harder, and then you think about who Jesus Christ is. And, you know, salvation is waiting for all who come. And uh, certainly there are believers, I'm sure, in New York City. And uh, uh, there is always hope uh, because of, of who Jesus Christ is and what he did. Two applications, pretty, pretty simple applications uh, from the text. Um, nothing real, real profound here, but I think can be very important. And number one is you are loved. You are loved. Human beings are loved by God. When we see what he did, what he gave in his son Jesus Christ, we are loved. You know, there are times that we all feel, I'm sure, we, you know, we think that nobody cares or we're going through difficult times, but, uh, but we are loved by who Christ is and what he did. And secondly, you are important. You are important. You are significant. Again, looking around and, and sometimes we, we are just, uh, you know, what, the illustration I think somebody used sometimes is like marbles bouncing around off of one another and just... Um, you know, we just seem to all be in, be in our own worlds and, uh, you know, who cares? Who cares about me? I'm not really that important. Well, you know, I can't answer that for every single human being, but I can answer it from God's perspective because Paul has given us insight. You are important. Your significance comes not from the world around you, but from Christ himself. He chose to create you as an individual and he chose to make the path of redemption possible for you, not just as for the whole human race, but for you as an individual. So as we prepare and we move our hearts now uh, toward communion, I'll turn it over to Kent here in just a, just a second. I just wanted to close with the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed was uh, around the 4th century. There, the idea of who Jesus Christ was was being attacked and uh, so this is one of the creeds of our Christian faith. The Nicene Creed goes like this. We believe in one God, the Father, all sovereign, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from the heavens and was made flesh of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended into the heavens and sitteth on the right hand of God of the Father and cometh again with glory to judge living and dead of whose kingdom there shall be no end. Let's pray. Father, as the uh, musicians come here in just a moment and prepare our heart for um, a time of worship with you at the communion table, Father, we are reminded again of who you are and what you have done. Father, some of these things we've heard since we were little kids, some of us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Father, we just uh, 
Thank you for sending your son and for making a way to restore our relationship with you. Father, we lift this time up to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.